Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Morning, Grace City family. Pastor Chris here. It's great to be back with you this morning. Uh, really been excited about the last four weeks and our opportunity to go through this Meet the Family series, hearing from Pastor Brett Fuller, Pastor Clayton Bell, Pastor Hillary Paulson, Pastor Daryl Morrison. It's been amazing to just hear from others in our family and what words God would have them impart to our community. I hope you've been encouraged as I have, um, but today we're moving forward. We're moving forward. We're into a new sermon series. And if you were with us last week, you heard me talk about this a little bit. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking almost the next year and we're going to be going through the book of Mark in detail. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to split it into six mini series, kind of the chunks that uh, make sense to go together throughout the gospel. Um, There's some different focuses and ways we can orient them. And so it's going to help break it up. But at the end of the day, as a family, we are going to take a deep look at the gospel of Mark and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus through that. So I'm, I've been excited for this for a long time. Um, you're probably going to hear it in my voice today. This is something that I'm just ready to, to enter into with you guys. Um, God's been showing me a lot of cool stuff uh, about himself, about Jesus, and about this book that I'm excited to impart to you here this morning. Um, so first of all, though, before we get into that, I just want to check in. If you're here with us this morning, go ahead and comment uh, in the chat bar on the side of the window. Um, tell us who's with you, where you're watching from. I know for me, and I've heard for other people in our community as well, uh, in these times when we can't gather together, look around the room, see who's with us, and, and experience corporate worship and receiving of the word in the same room. It's really cool to have people pipe in and just see who are, who are we joining together with right now. And it's, it's an encouragement to our soul to know that we're still coming together collectively as a community. So if you wouldn't mind just checking in, say where you're, where you're watching from, who you're watching with. And I pray that that would be an encouragement to all of us as we see names popping up right now as I'm speaking in that chat window. So let's get into this. Today's message is titled, Make Room for Jesus. And in this message, we're going to look at the first eight verses of the book of Mark. But before we get in, in depth to this book, what it means for us and how it calls us to live, I believe it's important for us to understand some things about uh, the book of Mark. Uh, First, it's important for us to understand how it fits in uh, with the other Gospels. As you know, there are four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all written from a unique perspective, but still inspired by the Holy Spirit written to communicate the same message. But I find it helpful for us to understand how it fits in with those other books. So, first of all, the book of Matthew is written to Jews, telling them that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And then the Gospel of Luke is written to Greeks, telling them that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man who came to save and minister to all people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you got the book of John, which is written to the world telling that Jesus is the full human, fully divine Son of God in whom we must believe and receive eternal life. And then you got the book we're going through. The book of Mark is written to Romans, 
telling them that Jesus is the suffering servant who actively ministers on our behalf and gives his life as ransom for many. As you will see, if you haven't started reading the book of Mark yet, as we go through it, you're going to see that it is a fast-moving and hard-hitting book. It's by far the shortest of the four Gospels, and it's noted just as much for what it omits as for what it includes. For instance, in the book of Mark, there is no genealogy of Jesus. There's no miraculous birth narrative with Bethlehem and shepherds, as we have read many times. There's no childhood at Nazareth or visit of Jesus and his family to the temple. There's no Sermon on the Mount, and there's actually few parables compared to the other Gospels. What Mark did is he recorded in rapid-fire succession specific events from the life and ministry of Jesus to prove to a Roman audience that he is the Christ, the Son of God who served who suffered, died, and rose again as the suffering servant of the Lord, depicted by the prophet Isaiah. So as we prepare to walk through this powerful gospel narrative concerning Jesus Christ, there's two questions that we need to ask to orient ourselves around this book that should guide our time. The first is, who wrote this? Who wrote this book? And second, how should we approach the gospel of Mark? How, what, what lens should we view it through? How should we receive it? Um, as well as with any of the Gospels you could apply this to, but specifically the book of Mark. So first, who wrote this? Authorship is the technical term we would use for that, but who, who wrote this book? And the early church agreed unanimously that a man named John Mark wrote this Gospel. We read about his mother named Mary. She had a home in Jerusalem where believers often met in the early church. We read about her in Acts 12, 12. We know that John Mark and his cousin Barnabas accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, and that's referenced in Acts 12 as well. But Mark turned away and went back before their journey ended, which irritated Paul and caused some strife, further causing Paul and Barnabas to split up on their journey. We read about that. Um, But in 2 Timothy 4.11, we see that Mark was useful to Paul. They reconciled. Their, Their relationship was made right. The early church also affirmed that Mark was the apostle, Peter's interpreter. He was Peter's interpreter. So he recorded Peter's experience with the Lord Jesus, and Mark's account being especially vivid when it involves incidents with Peter supports this view. So we can agree that John Mark is the author of this book, and that's helpful to know and how that connects to other parts of the gospel, of the Bible. The second is, what's what's a few things we can keep in mind? as we dive into, like I said, any gospel, but for the sake of this sermon series, as we dive into the gospel of Mark. How do we approach this book? The first is we need to recognize that gospels are historical and not mythological accounts. They record what really did happen. This stuff really did happen, and it's their account of these things. We also need to recognize that the Gospels will vary because they're written by four different people and to differing audiences. However, because they were inspired by God, everything that wrote in, is written in them is true. So you may see things told a little different way or orders may be a little different between the Gospels. And that's okay because it's four different guys that walked with Jesus or were around in that time that are telling their accounts. If you took any two of us in this church, or let's say any four of us, 
in this church, and we all gave account for an experience that we shared, I bet each story would look a little bit different. Does that mean that anyone is lying or not telling the truth? No. We just each view it through our own lens. We have our different internal personal experiences within that historical event. And we need to offer and extend grace as we read these things, knowing that these are four different accounts. It doesn't make them untrue. It just means that we get to take all those pieces and put together to better understand who Jesus is. The third thing that we need to recognize is that Gospels are more than thematic bio, biographical studies. They're much more than that. They're actually historical theologies of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Portions may be summarized and may not be given as exhaustive accounts. It's going to leave you wanting, especially as we're going through the book of Mark, and be like, but wait, there, there had to be more that was going on there. Yes, there was. But he has a very intentional purpose in why he is writing the way he is and who he's writing it to. And it's not meant to be an exhaustive account. And the fifth thing is that with these Gospels, they're often more concerned about Christ's death than his life. In fact, more than one-fourth of each gospel deals with the final week of Jesus' life. One scholar said that the book of Mark is a passion narrative with an extended introduction, meaning that this all culminates and focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus with this extended introduction showing you who he is to set the stage for that final chapter of his time on earth. So hopefully this helps frame a little bit of, of this book, who wrote it, why it's important. And oh, as we get into these verses, I pray that God would use that information to help you immerse into this book and receive the words that John Mark wrote and that they would encourage you as to who Jesus is and what he means for you and for this world. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to start reading uh, this book, the first eight chapters, and get into what God wants to teach us. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I pray uh, that your word would sink deep into our hearts and souls through this time. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give me the words to speak and that you would, um, would deliver those to open hearts and ears that would hear. God, would, would these words, would your gospel, would the good news of Jesus Christ leave us all changed? as we encounter that here this morning. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll read with me, like I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So to the, the modern Western eye, which is us, to the way in which we view things, there's a lot of stuff in here that we just don't get. And so I want to take the next couple minutes and I want to help us unpack this. I want to help us see what, what is going on and try to step into the shoes of the one who would be reading this or even into the, to the shoes of those that would be encountering this when, when John first started preaching this message. But in order to fully understand what's going on here, we need to do our best to put ourselves in the places and in the mindset of those who were originally receiving this message. You see, these eight verses are flooded with references to stories and religious texts and hope that these people would have been well acquainted with since early in their upbringing. There's just things, it's like when we read a website and there's hyperlinks pointing you to other places or other sources, this is flooded with those things. We're like, this is pointing to this that they would know and this and all these other sources. And if we don't take a moment to actually look at that, we're not going to be able to understand the fullness of what's being communicated here. So prior to John the Baptist arriving on the scene, there had been some 400 years of silence without any prophets or messengers from God, and the people were anxiously awaiting the promise that was given by the prophet Isaiah of the coming Messiah that would deliver his people and liberate them from the brokenness and the sin in this world. They were just waiting for that, thirsting for that, desiring that. They would read the text over and over of this coming Messiah. They were well acquainted with God's promise to deliver them. And in verse 2 and 3, we see a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where he tells of a messenger that will come prepare the way for the Messiah. John is saying, this guy you've been waiting for to set the path straight for the Messiah, like, that's me. It's coming. He's coming. So buckle up. That's in essence what he's saying. And as we read on, it says the whole countryside and all of Jerusalem came to him. And this speaks to a great excitement that John's preaching was bringing about. The verb used in the original text, went out, suggests that they continued to go out or they kept going out. It wasn't like this one-time event where people went out and they heard his preaching. The way that this verb is used just tells us that people continued to flood out to receive this message that John was preaching. Over and over, they were just flooding out to receive this good news. And although there's a bit of hyperbole in the statement that everyone went, we don't know for a fact that every single person in Jerusalem and the countryside went out to receive John's preaching. It highlights that his message was stirring things up in this place and in this time. It is worth noting also that Jerusalem is at least 20 miles away from the Jordan River where John was preaching and baptizing people. And it's about 400 feet in elevation higher than the Jordan River. So you can imagine what it took to progress through the Judean wilderness and the hills to get to that river to receive this message, to confess sins and be baptized, but then to turn around and go back up 4,000 feet over 20-some miles to hear this message. It was no light journey. It wasn't, hey, yo, John's a couple blocks away. He's got some good news. Let's go check it out. No, it was, okay, get ready. This, it was a pilgrimage of sorts to go receive what he had for them. This wasn't for the faint of heart. It required a physical and a time sacrifice to engage in his message and what was happening. People were being stirred up to an extent that they would make that track 
to hear about this coming Messiah that had been prophesied in their religious texts. And then we hear about this outfit that John is wearing. And for so many years, I'd read through it, and I'm like, oh, they're trying to tell me that this dude's kind of weird. He wears a garment of hair and a belt around his waist, and he eats locusts and honey. And like, why on earth does it need to tell me this? And then I continued to read my Bible. And remember how I talked about those hyperlinks that we find in here? Well, something that the people who were receiving this message from John originally would have known right away is that a text and a person from the Bible that they had been hearing about since they were infants was also referred to in a similar way. And this would have just put, been putting off red flags for them of, hey, pay attention, there's something going on here. So let's look back at the scripture and see what the people, the Jewish people, and those in the entire region would have been steeped in since their early childhood. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says this, The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they replied, He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, That was Elijah, the Tishbite. That was Elijah. Now, if you've been doing this Jesus thing for long, or you've read through the Bible, or you've been in a discipleship process or a life group, you have likely heard the name Elijah, a great prophet that the people were looking to as maybe he would be the one that came back. There was some hope that maybe, maybe he would be coming back in all of this. And to make reference for John and uh, in, in what he was wearing and how he presented himself to Elijah told them that there is something going on here that we cannot miss that he, in essence, would be an Elijah figure foretelling of the Messiah that is about to come on the scene. About to come on the scene. And then it goes on to talk about his diet. And we got to understand when we read this, it, it, we don't have time to go into all this in this message today, but as you read this, there's nothing that is accidentally put in the Bible. Everything is there for a purpose, and it tells us something. And when it talks about eating locusts and wild honey, what it's telling us is that he's living a simplistic desert lifestyle, living off the land. A man who isn't concerned with comforts or, or just you know, luxuries, but he is a man that is dedicated wholly to God's purpose and what he's been called to do. And that's something that we need to acknowledge and recognize about John. So with this imagery, it's easy to see how the people would start to put John up on a pedestal. Uh, and he heads that off with his message, starting in verse 7, that he faithfully preaches until his death. In Mark 1, 7 and 8, he says this, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. In fact, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's humility and his boldness with his message is admirable. It's admirable. And this message sets the stage for what is coming. I can think of plenty of people that give inspirational messages or are telling a message of what is to come or warnings or whatever. And you start to get fame and it can build us up because in our humanity, there's something in our ego that likes attention and likes to be liked. And John was at that place where people were flooding to him. He had this message and everyone was looking to him, putting him up on a pedestal. And he says, oh, hold up, hold up. The one that is to come, I can't even untie his sandals. You guys, this, this Messiah that's coming, like, I baptize you in water, but, but he, he baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. 
and the Holy Spirit. And this was something that they had been thirsting for. They had been reading about. They had been hearing about since their childhood. And he's telling them it's coming. It's coming. He says it's time to get your heart right and prepare for the kingdom of God that is coming and will judge the wicked and the righteous. In essence, he's saying don't wait. The time is now. Don't waste your time analyzing this. Don't try to intellectualize this. Receive this good news by faith. The Messiah is coming. I'm here to declare it. The Messiah is coming, and you need to turn back to him. Get clean through baptism and water and prepare for the filling of the Holy Spirit that this Messiah will bring. You see, John's baptism is kind of like a bridal shower. You see, the, the decision's been made a preparation for the oneness that will come with the Holy Spirit's and dwelling in us that will come on that wedding day, but it's not fully here yet. It's not fully here yet. And when Jesus comes to earth and baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, he brings the indwelling of God's Spirit in his people. And in the church, which is his people, his body, is and later referred to as his bride. God's Spirit will live with people in people, becoming the air they breathe, the fire in their hearts. And this is the promise that these people had lived on, had been waiting for, and eagerly anticipated. And John says, it is now going to come true. But the question is, are they ready for it? Are they ready for it? It's about to happen, but are they ready for it? And all signs point to no. They're not ready. And that's why John is preparing the way or making room for Jesus' life, his ministry, his mission, his message, and his miracles. He's making room for those things to happen, preparing the way, setting the stage for the one that is to come. Now, it's kind of hard for us sometimes to wrap our mind around what that might look like today. But if we think about what it looks like to prepare the way for one that is to come, an important figure that has authority and that is to be revered, the closest thing that we have in our world is think about when a president of the United States is traveling somewhere. I've watched some documentaries about this because it just fascinates me, all the work that goes into the travel and relocation or like trips of a U.S. president. The Secret Service will go before them. They will plan out intricately the paths and all the places they'll go. They will secure buildings. They will background check people that might interact with the president, right? They make sure all the street corners are safe. They tell people, hey, this day at this time, the president is coming through here. Be, be ready. Prepare. It's going to be crazy. The fanfare is going to be crazy, right? Like they have to prepare not only the people, but the space and the places that he's going to go. There's an agenda, there's a purpose, and there's great care and taken. Take, there's great care taken for preparing the way for just a president to come through an area. Think about what greater care must be taken and at what deeper levels for the coming Messiah, for Jesus Christ. Now, it's not just a, a security thing. It's not a background checking people to prepare the way or make room for Jesus to come. But there's something that God had sent John to do in the hearts of the people there to make room for Jesus entering the scene. And I think there's a few things that we need to look at 
in this book that show us how we can make room for Jesus to enter into and work in our lives. Because as John was called to make room for Jesus, we also need to make room for him in our lives. So given that we're called to make room for Jesus in our lives, as John did on this earth, there's a few things we need to look at. How do we make room for Jesus in our lives? And John's message and what he told people to do thousands of years ago still resonates for us as to how we can make room for Jesus. And the first one, which is just a, like a, a center point of, of John's message, is to repent. To repent. Now, your association with that word repent can probably be a plethora of things. You may associate it with a sign you heard someone holding up on a street with a bullhorn in their hand. You may associate it with a billboard that says, repent or burn. You may associate it with a simple apology because you got caught doing something. Oh, I repent. And it's just an admission and an apology, but there's no actual change that happens. But this repentance that John speaks of and that the Bible speaks of that we are called to do is a radical change in direction in any area in your life that is not currently pursuant to God. It's a radical change in direction. It's a 180 degree change in direction and orientation to the pursuit of and glorification of God. I'm right now, I'm headed towards things that aren't good. I'm headed towards sin. I'm pursuing those things. And repentance is a recognition of that, a turning in the opposite direction and heading toward God, heading toward the things of him. John uses the Hebrew word that means to turn back or to return. And in the Old Testament, this often carries a sense of returning to God, reorienting one's life to a relationship with him. That is the essence of repentance. Now, part of that repentance is the confessing of your sins, acknowledging where you have went wrong, where you have went wrong, where you we're headed in the wrong direction. That's what confession is, an admission, a recognition of that. But you see, it's hard to turn from something when we don't admit that we're headed towards it. When we won't even admit that that is where we are headed, how can we turn from it? We have to acknowledge and admit our wrongdoing, our need for a Savior, and repent and turn to Him. And as we repent, which is the change of direction, and confess, which is to admit our sin and our brokenness, the end result is a forgiveness of sins. God's direct response to true repentance, which includes but is not only confession of sin, is forgiveness. God's response to our repentance and confession is forgiveness. And this is a posture that we are called to adopt as we make room for Jesus in our lives. You see, we're called to live a lifestyle of repentance, not a lifestyle of perfection. And so many of us have this idea that being a Christian or trying to pursue Jesus just means I have to be perfect. <laughs> but God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He sent Jesus to do that. He sent us to a lifestyle, to, to be called to a lifestyle, a consistent heart posture of repentance, an admission to the reality of our current sins and struggles. I find this to be such good news, family, 
that God doesn't expect us <laughs> to be perfect. Perfection is not the expectation, but the direction of our heart headed away from what is ungodly toward righteousness and glorifying our Father is what we're expected to do as best we can. And the reason it's a lifestyle is because it's going to have to happen often. As we struggle, as we stumble, as, as maybe we make poor decisions or maybe our heart is misguided or misdirected, we're not like, that doesn't mean it's over for us. That just means we get to practice repentance again and continue to turn to the Father. It is a lifestyle. And that's one of the things that we are called to do in our lives in order to make room for Jesus. Another thing is to get water baptized. To get water baptized. Water baptism is an outward expression of an inward transformation through repentance. Confession and faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Making room for Jesus to move and minister in your life and through your life includes getting water baptized. We see it time and time again in the Bible that people put their faith in Jesus, they repent and believe, and they get baptized. It's not a, all right, I'm going to live this out for a couple years, make sure that this is what I want to do, and then when I really know, I'm going to get baptized. You know, for me, I gave my life to Jesus, and I was trying to figure it out, and I was like, I'm still too messed up. I can't do this. I can't do this baptism thing. And then I was like, okay, God's really been urging me to get baptized. I was like, okay, i got to make sure the right people are there, the right time. You know, and I want to do it outside, so if it's too cold, it's going to just be miserable to get baptized in cold water, of course, because it's all about my comfort. And I, and I put it off in disobedience for too long. But let me tell you, the moment I stepped into those waters in obedience and baptism, I came out of that water changed. There was something that that act did deep down inside of me that was just waiting to become unleashed. Just waiting. And I pray this for you, family, that if you're there and you're like, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how to do this life yet, but I know that I need Jesus and I want to take the next step. And if you have not yet been water baptized, you need to reach out and let us help you with that. It is an essential step, an outward expression of an inward transformation of God working in your life. And it is an important point of John's message as he prepared the way and made room for Jesus. And it is essential for us to take that step as we make room for him in our lives. Repentance, confession of sins for forgiveness, water baptism. And we need to trust him. We need to trust him. Trust is a loaded word, isn't it? It's a loaded word. Why is it so loaded? Because we live in a broken world where our trust has been abused so many times. And it causes us to enter into relationships where trust may be necessitated or may be called for with skepticism and cynicism. And we're just, we're so slow to trust. But this kind of trust we're called to have in God to make room for Jesus, it's not a hedge your bets kind of trust. It's not a, yes, but I have a backup plan kind of trust. It's not a, well, that'd be cool if that happened, but I, I don't know kind of trust. That is not the kind of trust or trust at all that we are called to have in God. The kind of trust that makes room for Jesus is the kind of trust where we make room for our unbelieving friends and family and coworkers to encounter good news. 
It's the kind of trust that sacrifices your time and your finances because you know who blesses you with those resources in the first place. It's the kind of trust that engages in relationships, even when you have insecurities and fears about them and maybe what they think about you. It's that kind of trust. It's the kind of trust that acknowledges that this mission God has given you is important enough for you to get over your fear and to get over your anxiety and worry about sharing it with other people. It's about getting over those things. This is the kind of trust that is willing to follow him as your Lord and your Savior, your King, rather than following yourself. That's the kind of trust. It's an all-in, no-backup plan, no-hedge-in-your-bets kind of trust. That's how we make room for Jesus to move and operate in our lives. You see, John quotes Isaiah and Malachi and references Kings and Leviticus and Joel, all of those in in these first eight verses alone, because he is showing anyone who would receive this message that God is trustworthy. He is fulfilling all these things that were said that were going to come true. He's trustworthy to follow through on these things. He's not the earthly father or friend or spouse that occasionally drops the ball or who has let you down. He is a God who is trustworthy and he follows through. That's why John points these things out. And I know you have worries in your life right now. I know there are a lot of questions that you have about life and faith and what on earth is going on in this world. I have questions too. But God has not called us to figure that out. He's not called us to figure all that out. He's called us to be his messenger and his child, his son or daughter. And he says, watch how I will bring redemption and refreshment to my people as they trust me and walk in my calling in their lives. Watch how I bring refreshment, redemption in their lives. So trust him to do what he says he's going to do. Trust him. And all we have to do is worry about the obedience part. Let's faithfully walk out how he calls us to live, living a lifestyle of repentance, pursuing him in all we do, bringing glory to him. And let him handle that other stuff. That's his job. He created us. He created this earth for goodness sakes. I don't know anyone more qualified to trust with that role and responsibility in our lives. The final thing as we close that I need us to recognize is that we can identify with this tension that John is living in. You see, John comes onto the scene. People are waiting for Jesus to come, and he's preaching this good news of the coming Messiah who's not yet here, but who has been foretold about. And he goes out and he makes some enemies. People maybe don't like what he says. They don't understand it. They don't get him because he lives differently. He preaches a different message. He's not trained like the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, yet he's quoting scripture, which to them seems out of context, but he's preaching of the this coming Messiah, this good news, this hope, and he's in this tension of what has been foretold and what is not yet here, but he's dwelling in that tension, faithfully sharing the good news of Jesus' coming. In family, we find ourselves in a similar situation. Hopefully you're not wearing a garment of hair and a leather belt, maybe stepped up from locusts and honey to maybe another category of food. Nevertheless, this tension of us sharing this good news of Jesus' coming 
his second coming for us. But he's not yet fully here, but he is to come. And we get to faithfully share that message and that hope and that good news in a time where people desperately need hope, but they're skeptical and they have questions and they want answers, not all of which we can give them, but we can point to the one who has them. We get to identify with John in the tension of this, what has been foretold, but what is not yet fully here, faithfully, boldly, and courageously preaching this message of hope to all those who would hear it. To all those that would hear it. And those that desperately need it, even if they can't recognize that yet. There has not been many times like the present where the entire globe is recognizing their need for hope and purpose and something outside of an economy and a government. Everything else is letting people down right now, except for Jesus. Because even though we're in lockdown, we celebrated an empty tomb. Amen. And even though we're in lockdown and we can't meet together and gather in churches as we usually did, we are here this morning meeting together, worshiping through music and the word and prayer. And God is still alive and good. And his message of hope supersedes our circumstances and our anxieties that we're experiencing in this season. So as you read these initial verses of the book of Mark, I pray that you would identify with being a messenger in attention of what is being foretold, but what is not yet fully here. And would you heed the calling to boldness and courage to give the most life-giving message that anyone could ever receive anywhere that you would go to anyone who would hear it. That's my prayer for us, family, that we would share this message, that we ourselves would make room for Jesus through obedience in these things, and that we would help others to do the same. And I promise you, if we will boldly live this out, there will be a shifting, not just in the natural, but in the supernatural, in our county, in our cities, in our families, when God moves in us and through us. So I invite you. Are you in? You ready for this? This is going to be an amazing time going through this book and seeing what God has for us. But it starts with owning this message as ours and sharing it and making it for others as well. I love you guys. I'm going to pray and close us, and then we're going to finish with some worship. So God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for coming on the scene a couple thousand years ago. And bringing this message of hope and redemption. God, I thank you that as a family we get to go through uh, this gospel, through your word, and see what it means for us today. God, I thank you that it helps us to learn more about who you are and who we are because of you. So God, as we enter into our weeks, our families, our workplaces, and our world, would you be motivating our heart? Would we desire things that are of you? And God, would we be able to lift up our voices and our hearts in adoration for who you are and what you've done for us and offer to everybody. So we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.